0: Well, Jesus gave an amazing invitation. He said, come to me, and he said, follow me, and something's going to happen. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to make you fishers of men. I believe that may be the grandest invitation that Jesus ever gave. It just makes us want to get up every day and go, God, I'm in what are you doing? Show me where you're already working. I want to get in on that. And I know many of you have joined Jesus in that grand adventure. And if you have, you know what a meaningful life that that really is. It infuses not only meaning, but a sense of purpose and excitement into every single day. Well, we are wrapping up today this series called Potency and Proximity. And I want to do so By looking at a short parable Jesus taught, it's found in Matthew chapter 13, and it is short, it is potent, but trust me, it is very, very powerful. I pick it up, Matthew's gospel, chapter 13, verse 47. Once again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was let down into the lake and caught all kinds of fish. When it was full, the fishermen pulled it up on the shore. Then they sat down and collected the good fish in baskets and threw the bad away. This is how it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come and separate the wicked from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Have you understood all these things, Jesus asked. Yes, they replied. Wow, what a sobering portrayal that is of the end of the age. And the fishermen among them, of course, would have immediately identified with this whole idea of hauling in the nets. And so Jesus uses that common experience in that part of the world lot of fishermen, to describe the final great harvest of souls where it's as though God is hauling in the net for the very last time. And so as we unpack this parable today, I want you to focus on three periods of time that I see it portraying. One is a time of opportunity where the net is being cast far and wide. Second, a day of completion when the fishing is done and the net is finally hauled in, and then third, an eternity of separation. And I think you'll agree with me by the end that of all the parables Jesus taught, and so many of them were potent and penetrating, to me, this is certainly one of the most sobering parables that our Lord Jesus ever taught. So if you have a copy of the scriptures, let's dive in the first period of time, I want you to note with me, is a time of opportunity. I read again from verse 47. Once again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was let down into the lake and caught all kinds of fish. So this gospel net is being cast out into the sea of humanity, and it's happening between the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ. That's the time we live in right now. And this week, I I toyed with all kinds of different words. In fact, I looked up synonyms, and I settled on this word opportunity. To me, it captures the time we're in right now, because disciples have the opportunity to proclaim the good news, and those whom God is calling have the opportunity to respond. So the net is going out there, and I get the sense from Scripture that this is sort of a universal thing. I think there's a number of Scriptures that imply that. Let me give you a few of them. First John chapter 2 says, He, that is Jesus, is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And just in case we ever forget this, not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. I hope you see the universality implied in that. The sins of the whole world. So God wants people to be drawn into that gospel net and come into a saving relationship with Him. The apostle Paul speaks to this in 1st Timothy chapter 2, speaking of God our Savior who wants all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. The apostle Peter chimes in with his voice in 2 Peter chapter three. He said, The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Just a couple more scriptures here. Paul says essentially the same thing in Romans 8, where he says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. And then finally... In the Great Commission, Jesus told the disciples to go into all the world and make disciples of all nations. Now, I could add a lot more scriptures to that, but I wanted just to show you a few. I don't want you to miss the point that the scope, the scope of the gospel appeal is apparently one with no limit. And this is something we need to understand that it's not our brilliance and persuasion that is not, that is going to get people into the net, so to speak. God the Father is drawing them according to Jesus. Jesus said in John's Gospel, chapter six, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws that person, draws him or her, and I will raise him up at the last day. Now, you say, but pastor, If God is the one doing the drawing, how would you know that you're being drawn? I think that's a great question. And I would say that one of the indications is that God begins to stir up in a person a restlessness and a dissatisfaction. As the great theologian Augustine said so many centuries ago, thou hast made us for thyself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they rest in thee. Have you ever seen this happen? Here's a person going along with their life, just flying through the years, seeking all the pleasure, all the fun they can, and, and wow, they're having a lot. They're living large, man, and it's wonderful, and they're honestly enjoying themselves until suddenly it all seems so shallow. God is beginning to stir in that person a restlessness inside because they were made for a relationship with God, and no matter how many joys and pleasures and excitements and new adventures and serendipities they have in this world, nothing can fill that void and that vacuum. So God himself is the one who draws. But hear this. Even though God is drawing people, we can definitely resist his drawing. Stephen who stood before the leaders in Jerusalem and was eventually executed by them. He was stoned to death by them. He said in his speech before his death, you stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears, you are just like your fathers. Catch this phrase now. You always resist the Holy Spirit. I wonder if some of you listening right now are actually resisting God's drawing. You've heard the gospel many times. You know a lot of the substance and the content of it. And you recognize that voice of conviction inside of you. I say this with great love and compassion. If you're resisting God today, please be careful with that. Because the more you resist, the more calloused and hardened your heart will become. And God forbid the day comes when you are no longer even moved by the gospel. Perhaps you've been saying to yourself, look, I got my whole life to deal with this. I'm young, I've got plenty of living to do. One day I'll get down to business with God. Well, that is a very perilous way to live and a perilous way to think. Jesus told a story about a guy like that. It's in Luke's gospel. It says, he told them this parable, the ground of a certain rich man produced a good crop. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And There I'll store all my grain and my goods and I'll say to myself, you have plenty of things laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Now, that story shakes me up every time I read. I've probably read it literally hundreds of times. Here's a guy going blithely through life, making plans, thinking there's plenty of time, and he didn't realize that his appointment with death was already on the calendar. Now, the Bible says a lot about foolish people and foolish behavior, but I want you to know that is the only guy Jesus ever called a fool. Right there, that one. Because he had planned and prepared for every contingency in life, everything, that is, except eternity. I wonder if that describes you. Maybe you're listening to me right now, and your spouse is a Christian, but you're not. And you've been resisting this whole thing, but maybe God's been drawing you. Or maybe you're listening to me right now, and You're not a believer, but you work around some believers, and you've been watching them. And God's been stirring something in you, and you know that you see, although they're not perfect, you see a genuineness and an authenticity in your lives, and it's kind of attractive to you. Or perhaps you're a teenager, and maybe your mom and dad are are Christians, but you've been thinking, look, I... I got my whole life to get right in my relationship with God. I'll get down to business someday. Well, maybe you will, but maybe you won't. How can you be for sure that you have time? The one thing we do know for sure is that once we die, there are no more chances. Then comes the judgment. But see, here's the good news today, and there is good news in the midst of all this sobering news. The good news is that we live in a time right now of opportunity. Christ has come. He has not yet come again in his second glorious coming. But in between time, the net is being cast wide and far. And this is a time of openness where people can respond willingly to the gospel. But I warn you, that time does not go on forever. And individually for you, it does not reach beyond the span of your own life. And that's what makes this message super urgent. By the way, let me just say that that's one of the reasons we're going to come together tonight from all three of our campuses We're going to come together at 7 p.m. at our Latham campus, and it's going to be an all-campus worship night. I'm excited about it. It starts at 7 o'clock, and I'm going to be here, and all of our pastors are going to be here, and worship leaders and members of all of our different worship teams are going to come together. It's just going to be an awesome, I would even use the word raucous probably. It'll be a little raucous celebration. I don't want you to miss this. And we're going to seek God and pray because this is a season of opportunity. And he's given it to us, and people can still respond to the gospel. And boy, that is good news. But I want you to see now that second period of time because this parable also teaches that there is a day coming, a day of completion. A day is coming when the opportunity to respond to the gospel is complete. It's done. It's finished. No more opportunity to respond. Verse 48 says, When it was full, that is, when the net was full, the fishermen pulled it up on the shore. And Jesus, in verse 49, describes that as the end of the age. What age? Again, it's the age of opportunity where the gospel net is being cast, the age when people can still respond willingly and bow the knee to Jesus Christ. But hear me, there is a day marked on heaven's calendar when that season of opportunity comes to an end. Now, some of you may be a little bit struck by the fact I would talk about a calendar in heaven. But but here's what I find when I read Scripture. The Bible speaks often as though God has this calendar where he's marking time. Now, God lives outside of time and space, but God, it's like he has a calendar where he's marking time. For instance, Galatians 4 says, when the time, when the time had fully come, God sent his Son And so the birth of Jesus in Bethlehem was according to God's perfect timing. And Jesus often spoke in terms like this. He said in Mark's gospel, chapter one, the time has come. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. In Luke 19, Jesus speaking to some people who were apparently spiritually dull, he said, you did not recognize the time, the time of God's coming to you. Praying to his father in John 17, Jesus said, Father, the time has come, glorify your son. And Jesus often said throughout his ministry, my time has not yet come, as though there was a logical sequence of events unfolding. In John 13, Jesus knew that the time had come for him to leave this world. Now, I know I'm stacking up a lot of scriptures here, so I really don't want you to miss my point. As you read the scriptures, it seems that all of Jesus' life is unfolding a according to a divine calendar. And God's calendar tells us that this time in which we're now living is coming to an end. Paul made this provocative statement in 1 Corinthians 7. He said the world in its present form is passing away. And so God in his calendar has set a day And Acts 17 tells us about that. Paul, preaching to the people at Mars Hill in Athens, said, For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. And so the biblical evidence suggests that not only is that day coming, but guess what? it's going to come unexpectedly. Peter describes it like this, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief, like a thief. I know one thing about thieves. They don't phone ahead. Amen? They don't tell you when they're arriving, heads up, here's when we're coming. No, they come at the time you least expect them. And people are, all concerned about signs of the times. And I think that's a very interesting thing to look at. And Jesus did give some things that would mark the season of his coming. But one of those is the hauling in for the very last time this great gospel net that is being cast out. And personally, I think we're privileged to live in a time like this. Oh, I know Christians love to gripe. Oh, we love to gripe. I know we love to look at our culture and our world and talk about how ungodly it is, and oh, ain't it bad, oh, ain't it bad. Our Christian values are being marginalized and we're being mocked and all of that may be true. But quite frankly, I'm pretty happy to be alive in a time when the gospel net is still out there. It's still a time of opportunity where people can respond to the good news of the gospel and respond to God's grace. And that's, of course, what Alpha is all about. We're going to spread the gospel net far and wide throughout our region. We're inviting people from every walk of life to come and sit down and have some food and listen to a presentation And then talk about the claims of Christ and how God calls us to respond to his gospel. I love it. I love living in a a time where there's still opportunity. But oh, I want you to hear me today. This is so sobering because the time of opportunity isn't lasting forever. One day, God is going to step out of eternity and say, Ladies and gentlemen, close your laptops. Ladies and gentlemen, stop what you're doing. Time is up. The opportunity for responding is over. We are hauling in the net. And that sobers me because I believe with all of my heart that that day is coming. And I think it's marked on God's calendar. And so that infuses urgency into a time like the night that I'm inviting you to. You see, we want to come together from all of our campuses for this great worship event this evening. And we're going to pray and seek God with passion and urgency because we don't know the exact time when God will say, all right, enough, time's up hauling in the net for the last time. And so we want to pray for the people we care about. Do you have any people in your life like that? Oh, you love them so much. Oh, my goodness, you love them so much. But as far as you know, they just don't have that relationship with Christ yet. And that's what Alpha is about. We want to invite them. We want to pray for them And join us this evening at 7 p.m. as we pray and worship and seek God together. So, I don't want you to miss that. So there's a time of opportunity. There's a day of completion coming when the opportunity will all be over and the net will be drawn in. And then, and this is the last thing I want you to see from this parable, then, according to this, there is an eternity of separation. Again, I say it again, to me, this is a very sobering lesson from the heart of Jesus. I read now verse 48, when it was full, the fishermen pulled it up on the shore. Then they sat down and collected the good fish in baskets, but threw the bad away. And then Jesus says, making commentary on his own parable, this is how it will be at the end of the age the angels will come, imagine that, the angels will come and separate the wicked from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Is it just me or is this parable stunning in its implications According to Jesus, some people will have affiliated themselves with the church and Christian people, but they're not yet truly saved. I get the impression that there are people who will have rubbed shoulders with Christians and worked alongside them, people from the same family, people, neighbors living side by side, and and this one's saved and that one's not. Jesus spoke about that reality in another place, Matthew 7, where he said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who's in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. It seems that according to Jesus, it's possible to be actively involved in the things of God and yet not born again by the Spirit of God. So how would you know if you're born again? Again? You know, our brothers and sisters from centuries ago, the healthiest among them, the really robust, healthy Christians, used to regularly examine their own lives and souls to see indications that they were really in the faith. And they would look at things. How would you evaluate yourself? Some of the things they looked at were like a growing appetite for God and the things of God, a desire to please God. The love of God increasing in their lives, like Romans 5 says, where Paul there says, and hope does not disappoint us because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he's given us. That's one of the evidences of of a real Christian. God pours his love out in our hearts. and, And essentially, we begin to actually change. So, becoming a Christian is not just about praying a little prayer. Please hear that. I prayed as a boy, I kid you not, dozens and dozens of times, every time a lightning storm would come, and they were frequent, I'd hit my knees and pray, oh, God, I don't want to die and be lost. Oh, God, keep me safe. I really did. And I was scared out of my mind but I wasn't genuinely repentant. That was a godly sorrow for my sin. And see, here's my concern. And, I, and I'm telling you this because I'm gonna give an account one day for how I led and shepherded and stewarded my own influence. So I, I feel like I've got to tell you this. I'm a little concerned, I'm concerned that some of you were told years ago by some passionate evangelist who kind of buttonholed you and got you over the corner and you couldn't get away from them. Hey, just pray this prayer with me. Well, I'm not sure I believe all of it. Well, you know, it doesn't just pray this prayer. Well, I'm really not ready. I mean, I haven't even thought about this. Look, just pray this prayer with me. You need eternal fire insurance, brother. Just mouth these words with me. And so you did just to placate them. And I think that happened to many people, but there's not really evidence in your life today that you're in the faith. So please listen carefully right now. Nobody in the Gospels ever became a Christian by praying a little prayer. Now, before you stone me, before you stone me, before you throw rotten eggs at me, hear me out. Nobody in the epistles, nobody in the book of Acts, nobody in the New Testament ever became a Christian by praying a little prayer. I hope you're hearing that because we need some correctives on this. We've inherited some things from from certain traditions we've had that, that I think have led us to some poor theology. Nobody ever became a Christian that way. Now, we pray for people after every service, and we're gonna keep on doing it. Are you hearing me? Because prayer's a good thing. We are invited dozens and dozens of times in Scripture to pray and seek God. It's an awesome thing, and God has promised to answer. So if you're a disciple of Jesus today, I sure do hope you're praying, and I hope you're growing in your prayer life. But let me say it again. Nowhere in the Bible. Are we given the mechanics or the instruction? Hey, you want to become a Christian? Pray this little prayer. Again, prayers are fine. We're going to keep on praying them. In fact, I'm probably going to lead you in one at the end of this message. Okay? Hope you're getting that. But please know, search high and low in this New Testament. And a little prayer never made a person a Christian. You say, well, pastor, what is it then? Godly sorrow over your sin. God sent repentance in the heart. Trust in Christ alone as your Savior through his atoning death and resurrection. A deep heart conviction. I am dead in my trespasses and sins. I am doomed and hopeless unless God intervenes. Oh, Jesus, I trust in you. That is how a person is saved. Don't stone me. Don't stone me quite yet. Got to ask you, has that happened to you? Now, when that does happen, oh, when that happens, it's awesome. Holy Spirit comes to live in you. His spirit bears witness with your spirit, little s, that you are a son or daughter of God. The love of God is poured out in your whole heart by the Holy Spirit. He comes to dwell in you, and you become a living, breathing, walking temple of the living God. Now that's a Christian. That's a Christian right there. And he begins to stir up in you a desire to please God. If that's never happened to you, I'd be really concerned. I'd be really concerned. Again, not talking about feelings here or anything. I'm talking about a genuine, authentic, substantive, objective experience that is initiated by God and that you, by his grace, respond and cooperate with. That's what I'm talking about. Jesus went on to say here, said the angels will come and separate the wicked from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Wow. That is a picture of complete and final separation. I'm using that word because it's the word that Jesus used. Now, I know, I I know that talk of hell makes most of us cringe. But in case you're new to the Bible, I I just want to tell you the concept of hell was not made up by some crotchety church people to make sinners squirm. It was not. Nor did it come from Dante's Inferno. Just about everything we know about hell, guess where we got it? Jesus. Jesus spoke about hell repeatedly. He told the truth about it. And frankly, we want to follow his example. But there's a crisp warning here in the parable, you're not saved just by hanging out with Christians and swimming around in the gospel net, so to speak. And so we may delude ourselves into thinking we're okay when there's no genuine work of God in our hearts. You know, sometimes Jesus stuns me. I I, I read the gospels and I'm just like, Jesus, did you really say that? One of those places where I'm stunned is in Matthew 23, where he said, You snakes, you brood of vipers, how will you escape being condemned to hell? If I preached like that, I'd empty this building. I would. But Jesus preached like that. But here's what I find interesting Jesus never said that to pimps and prostitutes. Uh uh-uh. uh. Jesus didn't say harsh words like that to criminals people who knew they were sinners. People, Jesus didn't say that even to tax collectors, the worst of the worst in the society. Jesus reserved those scathing words for the religious elite who were associating themselves with the things of God but were not born again and changed by the Spirit of God. So let me ask you again, what about you? Are you born again by the Spirit of God? I finished a book this week by Thomas Boston. It's called The Art of Man Fishing. Weird title. It's written 300 years ago, and it's all about evangelism. It's all about God's call to be involved with him in the great harvest of souls. And in that book, Thomas Boston, this Scottish pastor, examined himself. He did it right in the book and he gave indications of evidences that he was truly in the faith. And this is what the sisters and brothers down through the ages have done. It's not some paranoid narcissism. It's a healthy exercise. Examine yourselves. Do you not realize that Christ Jesus is in you unless, of course, you fail the test? Are you hungry for the things of God? Are you growing in your love for people? Is the Spirit of God just kind of in you, or are you swimming around in the gospel net completely unconverted? I'll just tell you my experience. I've met many people through the years who were active in church for years, even leading ministries, elders, deacons, ministry leaders, small group leaders who weren't really saved by the grace of God. I had a conversation this week with my nephew from Tennessee. Gary and I grew up together. I'm his uncle, but we're actually about the same age. And uh, we talked about so many things. But one of the things he said to me, he said, Rex, as you know, I've been in church all my life. Led things, led ministries, active. He said, I wasn't saved until I was about 50 years old. And I think that's the story of a lot of people. And as you examine your own heart today, could that be you? You see, I started today by saying there's a time of opportunity and we're still in that period now. God's grace and love are still being extended and the work of the cross can still be made effective in your life. And if God is drawing, if God is drawing today, may be the day of salvation for you. So here's what we're gonna do. Again, as I've told you for 30 years, there's no magic in the words of the prayer, and I said it again today, just as another reminder. But, but, if God is drawing you, and if the Spirit of God has gotten you ready and cultivated your soul, where you are ready and prepared to receive Christ by faith, oh, then I invite you to pray this prayer along with me. Can we bow our heads together? And just before we pray, while all the heads are bowed, and I, I, I would just love a moment of, 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 of candor. I'd ask you to raise your hand if you'd say to me, Pastor Rex, I, I just want you to know that God is stirring in my soul, and I want to be really sure today. I want to be confident today that I belong to Christ. Would you just lift your hand up where you are? Thank you. Just lift your hand up right where you are. Keep it up for just a moment. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Thank you for those hands. Thank you for your honesty. Thank you for your candor. It's so refreshing. I love that about this congregation. Anybody else just before we pray, just slip your hand up. Thanks for that right there. Thank you. We're just going to pray. And again, this is all about God doing a work. There's no magic in my words. But if these words represent the sincere desire of your heart as God has brought you to this moment, I invite you to pray this prayer silently in your heart. Just pray it silently after me. Oh, God, thank you for loving me. Although I am dead in trespasses and sins. Thank you, Jesus, for dying on the cross so that my sins could be forgiven. I put my trust in you. I repent of all my sins. And I trust in you alone for salvation. Please forgive me and give me new life in you. And Father, I pray for all of those who genuinely prayed that prayer because you brought them to that place. And I thank you for the new life that's represented, even the conversations I had in the lobby earlier today, with people who you're doing a special work in their lives right now. Thank you for that. We commend these people to you, and we ask that you would seal them, save them, keep them, protect them continue your work in their lives, and we pray in Jesus' name, and let's celebrate together by giving God praise today. Could we just thank him? Thank you, Lord God. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your love. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.